More than 80% of Black patients with breast cancer would consider joining a clinical trial, but they're just not being asked. So there's plenty of opportunity to join clinical trials, but these patients are not being informed about them. Their doctors are not telling them about them. That's my colleague, Annalie Armstrong, a senior editor here at Fierce Life Sciences. Later, we'll hear more from her about a study from the Metastatic Breast Cancer Alliance. Annalie says it's a part of a new initiative called BECOME, which stands for the Black Experience of Clinical Trials and Opportunities for Meeting Engagement. I'm Teresa Carey, and this is The Top Line from Fierce Biotech, Fierce MedTech, and Fierce Pharma. This episode is brought to you by GoodRx. Today is Friday, June 10th, and well, we're all still riding the wave of energy that came out of the American Society of Clinical Oncology last weekend. It was ASCO's first in-person meeting since the pandemic, and of course, we had boots on the ground. But we'll save that for later. In the meantime, stick with us. We've got all the biopharma and medtech industry news you need. Emergent says Johnson & Johnson owes up to $420 million for breach of contract. But is the pot calling the kettle black? Here's Kevin Dunlevy. Johnson & Johnson and Emergent Biosolutions. It was not a marriage made in heaven. The matchmaker in this holy union was the U.S. government. Early in the pandemic, the Trump administration identified Johnson & Johnson and Emergent as partners to produce COVID-19 vaccines. Just one problem. Emergent also is manufacturing COVID shots for AstraZeneca and doing it at the same facility in Baltimore. At a plant with slipshod practices, which had already been flagged by the FDA, mistakes were bound to happen, and they did. In 2020 and 2021, 400 million doses had to be discarded because of possible cross-contamination. Today, Johnson & Johnson is no longer a major player on the COVID scene. They've lost out to Pfizer and Moderna. With little need to mass-produce shots, Johnson & Johnson is trying to get out of its contract with Emergent, but Emergent is not having it. In a filing with the Securities and Exchange Commission, Emergent says that Johnson & Johnson will owe between $125 million and $420 million if it exits early, calling the move a breach of contract. This struck Johnson & Johnson as odd. Jake Sargent, a director of corporate media relations, told me in an email that Johnson & Johnson had already told Emergent that it was exiting the contract and it wasn't a matter of if. He also pointed to the contract breaches committed by Emergent. Last week, the American Diabetes Association, or ADA, held its annual scientific sessions in New Orleans. Here to recap MedTech news from the event is Andrea Park. The American Diabetes Association held its annual scientific sessions in New Orleans this past weekend. All the biggest names in diabetes technology were there, ready to one-up each other with the latest clinical data for their devices. Medtronic presented results from a real-world study for its newest insulin pump and glucose sensor. When used together in the study, the devices were able to help users stay within their ideal glucose range for 73% of the day on average. They stayed in range even longer if they stuck to the system's recommended settings. Next up was Insulate. Its Omnipod 5 insulin pump was just cleared by the FDA in January. One study Insulate shared this weekend looked at adults with type 2 diabetes whose glucose levels started around 9.4% on average. After using Omnipod 5 for about five months, 
their glucose levels dropped below 8%. Those findings could be huge for people with type 2 diabetes, who traditionally don't use automated insulin delivery systems. Abbott, meanwhile, arrived in New Orleans barely a week after scoring FDA clearance for the Freestyle Libre 3 glucose sensor. The company says it's the smallest, thinnest, and most accurate 14-day continuous glucose monitor yet. Abbott also announced that they're working on a new sensor that would continuously monitor both glucose and ketones. That type of all-in-one device hasn't been done before and would aim to catch diabetic ketoacidosis as early as possible, before it turns life-threatening. Also presenting data at ADA was Eli Lilly and Nova Nordisk. Here to recap the biggest pharma news is Eric Saganowski. The American Diabetes Association made a return to an in-person meeting this year after two years of hosting virtual meetings because of the pandemic. The conference is a chance for companies to showcase their recent data. I spoke with Mohamed Eid, the head of clinical development at Beringer Ingelheim. He told me about a study on the company's diabetes medicine, Jardians. The study looks at the results of the first five years of Jardians usage in the United States after its FDA approval. The team found that Jardiance, an SGLT2 inhibitor, cut the risk of hospitalization for heart failure compared with other popular classes of diabetes drugs. It cut the risk in half when compared with DPP-4 inhibitors and by 30% compared with GLP-1 receptor agonists. Ede was pleased with these results because he said they relate to issues and decisions that healthcare professionals deal with on a day-to-day basis. Also at the American Diabetes Association meeting, Eli Lilly shared impressive data for its weight loss drug, terzepatide. In a phase three trial, the drug significantly helped patients lose weight. Patients experienced an average weight loss of 16% to 22.5%, depending on the dosage. That was as much as 52 pounds. After seeing the results, SVP securities research analysts said they think the drug will generate more than 14 billion by 2030. If Eli Lilly's drug wins an FDA approval to treat obesity, it will rival Novo Nordisk's Wegovi on the market. Fierce is at it again, compiling the best of the best in a special report. After a short break, Connor Hale and Heather Landy will talk about our list of the rising stars in health tech. For people like you who work in healthcare every day, it feels good to help others find the best care at the best price possible. But first, you need a better, more efficient way to identify and connect with appropriate patients and providers. And that's how GoodRx can help you. GoodRx provides a trusted platform to connect with highly qualified patients and providers during pivotal moments in their healthcare journeys. GoodRx has a range of solutions to help you build awareness, improve access, and remove barriers to adherence. Learn more about the benefits of partnering with GoodRx at www.goodrx.com solutions. So we're here to talk about Fierce's first joint special report between Fierce Healthcare and Fierce MedTech. Uh, we did 17 profiles on the rising stars in health technology. And these people are on the front lines of developing cutting-edge software and devices that might help reshape the industry. Heather, digital health is a common thread among all these upcoming leaders. When you think of digital health, how do you define it? I tend to think of digital health as, you know, something that could go in your pocket. So a smartphone app, a wearable, remote patient monitoring, anything that kind of collects data from patients wherever they are. Looking at these profiles, digital health definitely is a thread that kind of 
weaves through all 17 of them. So many of these, you know, health tech leaders are harnessing data in new ways that really impacts patient care from drug development to decentralized clinical trials to virtual care. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I thought it was interesting. A lot of them are working on devices and technologies that directly interact with patients, have direct t- patient touch points, and others are kind of looking at the big picture, uh, mm-hmm. you know, taking in all the data from those devices, from all, all those patient experiences, and transforming them into insights for even more people working in the industry. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. One thing that I noticed is that a lot, all these tech leaders are really on the front lines of pushing innovation in tech with a very particular focus on AI and machine learning. There's been a lot of talk, a lot of hype about artificial intelligence and healthcare. But what I've noticed with these, these 17 leaders and in the conversations that I had with, with you know, a few of them, they're not just automating tasks that were already being done. They really are kind of pushing a new frontier in using technology. Many of these tech professionals are you know, engineers and designers who pivoted from other industries into healthcare. Yeah, one person I talked to working at Siemens Health and Ears uh, used to work for the larger Siemens conglomerate on uh, automotive technology, you know, sensors in cars that would detect, you know, someone passing you or or obstacles in the path. And, and that's that relies on computer vision. And now he's working on computer vision software for machines like CT scanners to automatically scan people for strokes or other emergencies where every second counts. Right, right. That's really interesting. And then also, you know, like Tom Stannis, the, the CEO and co-founder of Story Health. I mean, he started in payments technology at Google and then kind of pivoted to, to Google's uh, life sciences focused company, Verily, and then eventually started Story Health. And it was interesting because many of these people have kind of had personal stories that kind of relate to their passion for technology and healthcare. I mean, Tom Stannis at Story Health said that he started as a healthcare entrepreneur literally as an accident because he was hit by a car while riding his bike. And then during a hospital CT scan, you know, he was fine from from the accident, but a hospital CT scan uncovered that he had stage one kidney cancer. And so then he basically pivoted his career from payments technology to working at Verily because he wanted to use his tech expertise to to really help people um, in healthcare because he, it was kind of a life-changing moment for him. And then also his father then had a stroke and was having problems with his follow-up care. And he saw gaps in the, in the market for when it comes to specialty care. So that kind of motivated him to start Story Health in 2021. And that is a company that's really helping to kind of um, help clinicians stay connected to patients. Yeah, one thing I, I did think was very interesting about this report is that collaboration is key. We profile people. Many of these people are project leaders and they're working with lots of different people on their teams. A lot of them are working with people from many different disciplines and backgrounds, not necessarily all in healthcare. And there's a, there can be interesting culture clashes in there trying to get the, these uh, once disparate worlds to work together. But uh, going forward, a lot of the people that we talked to for this report really believe that the only way forward is for is to find the common language to get all these people working on the same project. That was kind of something that I picked up on in my interviews as well. Um, Andrea Korobos, who's the CEO and co-founder of Human First, she's one of the, our profiles. Um, her company works with drug makers and hospitals to use sensor technologies for remote care. And she's a big, big believer in this idea of getting the industry to collaborate more. You know, she mentioned that one of the things that most excites her 
is this ability to get some of the most important and what she called probably slower moving companies to be able to use some of these different types of digital tools. I wanted to go back and talk a little about about what you mentioned before about what is AI doing now that just simply wasn't at all possible before? Like what, what is brand new as opposed to just technology automating the tasks that people used to do in healthcare? Right. So that, that has come up a lot in, in the interviews. I spoke with Bay Gross, who's the co-founder and chief te- technical product officer at CityBlock Health. And CityBlock, you know, contrary to what other digital health companies do, they have a tendency to, to focus more on kind of the, the higher end consumers or what people call the worried well. CityBlock really focuses on marginalized communities with complex health needs. And so they combine all these different um professionals, they combine nurses and doctors, pharmacists, psychiatrists, social workers, all to kind of serve this population. And it has historically in healthcare, that's been very siloed. Um, those are professionals that don't necessarily speak to each other. So Gross really leads um, the technology team and they built this platform that lets these multidisciplinary teams uh, record notes and tag each other and share takeaways from virtual visits or text messages with patients. And they're able to really kind of build up this more coordinated care for patients. And, you know, for what Gross was telling me, that was something that wasn't really capable, um, possible just a, a few years ago. I mean, his team has really built up um, this, this new kind of data platform. Yeah, there's a lot of things that just, you know, can't be done with pen and paper. I was talking with Dan Goldner, the VP for Advanced Tech at the diabetes company OneDrop, and he was talking about how his company is starting to sift through all of this data collected from thousands of people and like millions of hours of their own personal lives. And he described it not just as data, but experiences. So that when a new patient comes along, you can look at all of those snapshots of all of those lives and say, here's what worked for people in a similar situation. This might work best for you in your case. And that might be similar to how a doctor might operate with like a decade or two of experience, but developing programs like this kind of offers the chance to reach many more patients. Yeah. And then just getting away from the technology, one thing that I really enjoyed with the special report is that we were really focusing more on the people behind the technology. And I feel like sometimes in in news reporting, sometimes that can get lost a little bit. We're just focused on like the bigger picture of what's going on in in the tech world. But I really enjoyed just learning more about the people and, you know, why they're passionate about what they're doing in healthcare and life sciences. A few big pharmas have finally jumped on some M&A deals. GSK and Bristol-Myers have spent a combined $7.4 billion for two biotechs. Here's Annalie Armstrong. After months of anticipation, we have some deals. We thought that this would be the year large-scale transactions would return. On May 31st, GSK bought Affinivax for $3.3 billion dollars. The deal will potentially provide access to the pneumococcal vaccine market. Bristol-Myers is also picking a fight with a large company by buying Turning Point Therapeutics for $4.1 billion. They announced the deal on June 3rd. With this deal, Bristol-Myers will get the mid-stage asset, Repotrectinib, a competitor to Roche's lung cancer therapy, Roslatrec. Bristol-Myers is hoping the med will be approved next year, fitting into the company's medium to long-term growth strategy. Washington State's highest court ruled that drug companies are obligated to warn doctors, but not patients, about potential risks of their medicines. Here to tell us more is Ben Adams. 
When it comes to patient safety warnings about drugs, how far does pharma's liability stretch? Well, the new ruling out this week from Washington State's highest court has found the limit. They say that drug companies are obligated to warn doctors about all the potential risks of their medicines, but they don't have to warn patients to the same degree, even when the drug maker advertises directly to them. The case centers around Eli Lilly, which was hit by a lawsuit last year from a patient who claimed he had a stroke after taking its drug Cialis. The drug treats erectile dysfunction and prostate issues. The patient sued Lilly, arguing that the company knew or should have known that Cialis presented a risk of stroke. He said they failed to warn users about the risk. He argued that the rise in DTC drug ads has eroded the patient-doctor relationship, since patients no longer rely solely on the doctor's expertise when deciding to take a drug. And he wanted Lilly held accountable for not fully breaking down the risks in its ads. Lilly's lawyers argued that because the physician makes the final prescription decision, it is down to doctors, the gatekeepers of prescription medicines, to best understand all the risks. Ultimately, the court sided with Lilly, which means drug companies in Washington state aren't obligated to warn consumers of the risks. At last week's ASCO annual meeting, Arcelix presented the latest data on its CAR-T cell therapy for multiple myeloma. But that's not all. People were on their feet for Inheritu's breast cancer drug and its unheard-of results. We've got a lot to share about ASCO. So here is Annalie Armstrong and Angus Liu to kick off our ESCO coverage with conference highlights. We are back with another recap of the American Society of Clinical Oncology. This is one of the year's biggest cancer conferences. It just finished up on Monday in Chicago. We, of course, had a reporter on the ground covering a bunch of stories. Angus, I, I hear you. There was some pretty exciting in uh, the breast cancer world that you're going to tell us about. So what did the ASCO audience hear? Right, yeah. So I believe the most memorable study, uh, in my opinion, is uh, AstraZeneca and Daiichi Sankyus in HER2 in this new HER2 low breast cancer setting. So the minute long standing ovation after Dr. Shannon Lodic from Memorial Sloan Kettering presented the data speaks to the transformational nature of the results. Here are the data in her to reduce the risk of uh, disease progression or death by 50% and the risk of death by 36% compared with chemo uh, in patients with previously treated her to low metastatic breast cancer. So under current treatment protocol, this group of patients would only get chemotherapy. But in HER2, which is an antibody drug conjugate, now shows they could benefit from a HER2-targeted therapy. So, you know, we have HER2-targeted drugs like Herceptin for over two decades now. But these drugs are only saved for patients with relatively high HER2 expression on their tumors. Or these are what we call HER2-positive disease. Now, with this new HER2-low category, HER2 could redefine breast cancer subgroup from a treatment perspective. So the HER2 shown that it raises a, this exciting possibility that additional patients with even lower or HER2-ultra-low expression might also benefit from HER2. So the two companies will now try to find kind of the lower boundary of HER2's HER2 expression requirement. Right before the driving HER2, there's kind of this dichotomy of whether you are HER2 positive or HER2 negative. 
But now the scientists are proposing a spectrum of disease. And people argue that diagnostics should be updated to, to cope with this new, um, new spectrum of hard to expression. So traditionally, we have a targeted therapy for uh, a group of patients with HER2 positive disease. Usually, if you fall into HER2 positive breast cancer, you have relatively high expression of the HER2 receptor, the HER2 protein are in your tumor cells. But there are a large number of patients with slightly lower HER2 expression. They also have HER2, but just relatively lower levels of expression. But they, under traditional definitions, they would fall under her to negative disease and would be only able to receive chemotherapy once they have failed prior lines under other therapies. For this new therapy in her to it is trying to have out of some of the patients with lower her to expression and create this entirely new category called her to low and give them this her to targeted antibody trial. This definitely opens up a new category for treating breast cancer and possibly to even other uh, tumor types because there are uh, HER2 expressing uh, gastric cancer or HER2 mutant lung cancer. So this sounds like a breakthrough, but also while you were talking about this, I had a breakthrough in which I realized that this drug name in HER2 has HER2 in it. I had never put that together before. All right, so I hear that the Inher2 news is not the only exciting breast cancer study that was presented at ASCO. It sounds like Gilead also had some, some good stuff to present. So what did the ASCO crowd hear from Gilead? Right, yeah. Uh, so Emily, this would be Gilead's Trudelvi. Uh, this Trudelvi's uh, Tropics uh, O2 data in heavily pretreated HR-positive HER2 negative patients. Um, uh, fortunately, I, I think if you call it exciting, I, I think this this kind of more Gilead's interpretation. This data set doesn't look as exciting or uh, practice changing as in her choose, uh, but it could also open up a new treatment option for some uh, heavily pretreated breast cancer patients. So in that uh, trial uh, population, uh, compared with chemo, uh, Trudelvi slashed with the risk of progression of death by 34%, which isn't bad at all. Um, but as many people have suspected, actual improvement on progression-free survival was only 1.5 months. And it fell short of the two-month class bar that doctors had expected to see to call it clinically mean. So Trudelby only, compared with chemotherapy, Trudelby only extended the time patients had lived without disease progression by just 1.5 months. But in spite of the relatively disappointing data, analysts haven't written off Trudelby yet. The overall survival data, the gold standard uh, analysis on whether a drug uh, can extend patients' lives, that overall survival data aren't mature at this point. There's still a chance that Trudelby could eventually extend patients' lives. So enough about Fierce Pharma. Uh, what about Fierce Biotech? Uh, I heard J and G and partner Elijah Biotech could face some additional CAR T competition. Yeah, so there was some pretty exciting data coming from Arcelix, which is a pretty small biotech. Um, they have a CAR T therapy uh, in multiple myeloma, and they 
rolled out some data at ASCO that showed that that therapy had a 100% overall response rate at about 12 months. Um, so that means 100% of patients responded to this therapy. And 71% of the patients experienced what's called a complete response or better. Um, the therapy also had good durability, which meant it lasted for a long time. Um, analysts noted that it had the best response and minimal residual disease negativity, which in multiple myeloma just means that the cancer was barely detectable. So what does this all mean for Arcelix and I guess uh, multiple myeloma patients? Um, this goes up against J&J &J and Legends Cardgicti, which was approved last year for this type of cancer. Um, so Arcelix definitely had a nice win in this trial, but that doesn't mean that they automatically get to take the market if the therapy is ultimately approved. Um, they're obviously going to try to get FDA approval for this once they have some more data. But the challenge here for this small biotech is that they are going up against the J&J &J machine. Johnson & Johnson is the largest healthcare company in the world. Um, so it's really hard to bring a therapy up behind them. Uh, Carvicti already has a foothold in the market and they have the marketing and commercial power to keep it there. So analysts are a bit worried about how Arcelex is going to get this therapy into the market. They have a few things they want to see from the small company. So they want to see some strong data, which is going to be presented later this year at another conference called the American Society for Hematology, which is happening in December. And then the other piece they're looking for is some details on how they'll manufacture the drug. They want to know if Arcelix is going to try to do that themselves or if they're going to contract that out to someone. So there were also some really interesting studies that weren't your typical clinical data presented at ASCO. Uh, one that we wrote about yesterday was from the Metastatic Breast Cancer Alliance. They presented a study showing that more than 80% of Black patients with breast cancer would consider joining a clinical trial, but they're just not being asked. So there's plenty of opportunity to join clinical trials, but these patients are not being informed about them. Their doctors are not telling them about them. So this is part of a new initiative called BECOME which is the Black experience of clinical trials and opportunities for meeting engagement. So it's well known that Black men and women make up 15% of the cancer patient population, and yet they're usually only about 4 to 6% of cancer trial participants. This is clearly a failure of communication and one that's on pharma and the CRO world to fix. So this is a really important study, just laying out that patients... Black patients want to participate. They just need to be asked and given the opportunity. This isn't just a participation issue. This is a real medical issue. Uh, if we're going to market drugs, we need to know how they perform in every community. And I should note that this isn't just, this, while this study focused on Black patients, it's the same issue for Hispanic, for Asian patients. It's across all demographics that are, that are not white. So the last study I want to talk about came from Medidata, which is a clinical trial software provider. They had this really interesting study um, that looked at the incidence of cytokine release syndrome, which is a known complication of CAR-T cell therapies. So this is a life-threatening complication where a large rapid release of immune system proteins called cytokines are released into the blood after CAR-T treatment. This can cause a lot of problems, including trouble bleeding, 
or low, low blood pressure, and it can be life-threatening for some patients. Not a lot is understood about what patients are at risk for this. Um, so many data tried to take that on. What, what they did is they looked at common lab tests to see if there were any flags that, that could predict a patient's risk for CRS. So another thing that many data did is they, they recommended that CAR-Ts come with a risk management strategy, which in FDA speak is called a risk evaluation and mitigation strategy, or REMS. Basically a plan that lays out the specific risks of uh, unapproved therapy and, and how to mitigate them and ensure that patients are safe when the benefits outweigh that risk. Great. Well, so it's nice, Emily. Uh, maybe we'll get uh, an update of those numbers, of those data, and then uh, and another ASCO meeting. There is something interesting about ASCO this year, and it's the buzz around the newsroom this week. No, it's not the reveal of a new innovation or a novel discovery, at least not in the way you might think. With ASCO holding its first in-person conference since the start of the pandemic, you could say that the real highlights and discoveries coming out of the event are more introspective. And we put boots on the ground. A fierce biotech staff writer, Gabrielle Mason, was living the experience and reporting here for Fierce and the Top Line. Here's what she had to say. It was really overwhelming at first. I got the sense that everyone was also a little overwhelmed. You think like being in person would be so natural or just going back, reverting back to everything you did before. But there were, are a lot of nuances that I forgot about and apparently everyone else did too. So I'm glad I'm not alone. Gabrielle experienced some of those nuances firsthand. But like any good reporter, she couldn't just go with her gut. Our reporters asked a lot of questions to find out what others were feeling about being back at ASCO in person. Here's what Teresa Batetti from Takeda, Matthew Price from Promontory Therapeutics, and Kevin Sayer from Dexcom had to say. It's almost like a little bit of an out-of-body after being like, like, after like all the hyperness with, you know, masks and social distancing together. I'm surprised, for example, at how happily and readily I'm you know, shaking people's hands. If you'd asked me 18 months ago, I, I might have thought I'll, I'll never be shaking something's hand again. Yeah. Over half of our employee base hasn't been with our company more than three years. So to a lot of these people, I'm pretty much an avatar. And now people are seeing me in person. It's kind of, I, I would almost be happier just spending the time with all these new Dexcom people. I don't know if they than with the other companies, because it's just, it's, it's wonderful to get out and it's invigorating. The energy still, yeah, it's, but yeah. there's like a certain newness to it that is sort of like, wow. I asked Gabrielle to go deeper and it turns out there were more quirky surprises, like awkward buttons and oddly placed avocado toast. I feel like I'm kind of like re, recombobulating, like recalibrating how to be a person I'm like almost beating myself up because I'm like, oh, you've done this like for your whole entire life. Why, why is this not second nature to you? But it really is crazy how um, the brain kind of rewires. At the top of your article, there's this picture. Uh, it says, please take a button. And it has three bins, green, yellow, and red. Green mm -hmm. is handshakes and hugs. I'm, I'll accept those. Yellow is elbow bumps. Red stand at six feet. Which color did you choose? Did you wear one? The buttons honestly gave me a little bit of anxiety because I, I didn't want to commit. <laughs> it felt like too big of a commitment to be like, yes, everyone come and hug me, you know, green light. But also I didn't want to have this big red like 
stay six feet away from me. Don't approach. So I took all of them. And then I realized no one was wearing them. I, I didn't see a single person wearing them. You wrote in your article that the button idea receives an A for effort, but an <laughs> F for execution. <laughs> <laughs> I only saw them the first day. Was there any other pandemic aside things that were going on there that were interesting? Timing wise, it takes so much time to physically like move your body from one meeting to another. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can't just like click out and click into the new one. You have to actually like walk across to conference hall or a hotel or something to get there. Yeah, exactly. The exhibit hall was crazy. Just like this absolutely ginormous room with, you know, all the vendors. The thing that surprised me the most, which is going to be a little weird, every single place had like a built-in coffee shop. Wait, just at their booth in the exhibit hall? Yes. It was literally like a coffee shop and a furniture shop all in one for like Mm -hmm. most of the stands. I've been to trade shows before and usually people just put a little bowl of candy on the table. (laughs) Yeah. There was one place that had avocado toast. I felt like everyone kind of was really trying to bring their absolute A game. You know, Mm -hmm. like being back in person for the first time in a while, they were like, we're going to go all out. I think one of my favorite comments, too, came from Chris Aaron from Takeda. He said, yeah, it's the zoo. I mean, it kind of feels like the zoo that it always was. <laughs> you kind of, and there's moments when you're sitting in the big meeting room and things go whizzing by, you know, and, it's, and you're sort of like, oh, you know, that's how I have to, I feel like recalibrate how I listen to like things and these in an ASCO meeting because I don't have the ability to pause the video. We forgot about those advantages that we had learned, like had remote or virtual um and then <laughs> or, you, or you can't for a moment turn off your video so you can take a bite of your sandwich <laughs> yes exactly and like the amount of attention that is required at all times like you have to be on at all times and people can see your face and your expressions yeah wow that's really interesting how you're describing it the way we pay attention has shifted it's such a different type of energy i have some new muscles i'm trying to flex you don't maybe not new muscles but very unused old muscles and mine are definitely sore (laughs) that's it for the top line i'm senior producer Teresa carey our sound engineer is caleb hodgson you can find out more about these topics in our show notes at fiercepharma.com look for podcasts Don't forget to follow The Top Line on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you listen. And that's The Bottom Line from The Top Line.